This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Mental Clock, The New Mental Game. And the author is Mark Riviere, and Mark joins us now from Paris, France on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Mark. Hi, it's Steve. Good to have you with us. This is looks like it's fun and challenging, uh, a puzzle game and that you created, and we'll talk about the details of that uh, way back when you were a child, but let me read just a couple of things to kind of help everyone understand about this, this game. You say it appeals to everyone who likes playing puzzle games because you have to use your brain to find the solutions. People during commute or at home can share their spare time by playing an entertaining game while developing their logic and their mental arithmetic. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a puzzle game based on simple arithmetic. So, instead of using uh, calculators, uh, you have to use uh, arithmetic uh, um, combination using hours and minutes figures from a digital clock. And you say it's easy to play, and, uh, you know, people just have a great time doing it. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, it's a, it's a really easy to, to understand. It's just... Um, you, for example, I can give you an example. Uh, an easy level test will be a clock showing uh, 7.15, and the challenge is to find 40. So the solution is uh, 7 plus 1 equals 8. 8 multiplied by 5 equals 40. So you have the solution. So. And how old do you have to be to play the game? So it's better to have about... Um, 10 years old because you have to use uh, multiplication, division, uh, uh, subtraction, and uh, addition. So you have to to know how to use arithmetic. So how did this come about, Mark? Uh, When did you get the idea? So when I was a child, uh, I had uh, insomnia. So uh, every night I spent hours staring at my digital alarm clock, uh, watching (laughs) uh, minutes ticking by. So at one moment, I started playing uh, with the figures uh, with the goal to find the maximum uh, tens within uh, each minute. So it was a funny uh, experience when I was a child. So And later, uh, I talked uh, about uh, this game to one of my friends. And he said, oh, you should make uh, an iPhone uh, application and a book. Uh, and I did it. So everybody could, uh, can enjoy uh, this new game. So insomnia, instead of counting sheep, you were counting seconds and minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> well, of course, I think everyone can understand that mental clock is educational. Yeah, it's true, because you, you're, you're using a real uh, arithmetic uh, calculation. If you compare with Sudoku, you're, it's, um, you're using your real brain in terms of uh, calculation. So Sudoku is more... Uh, you have to place some uh, numbers in a in a in a g- grid, so it's a different kind of uh, of um, mentality. So it's a different kind of uh, game. 
And we want everyone to know that you can go to mentalclock.com, and there's all the information, and I guess you can, you can uh, get some sample of how to play there. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, for free, you can play uh, on, the, on the website, so um, people can try. It's easy to, to play, and you can play for only a few seconds or for hours, so it's really uh, interesting when you, when, you are, uh, when you commute to go to, to work or when you are at home, you have spare time, etc., so it's a good game for that. And also, uh, we want to point out to everyone that the website, when you first go there, is in French, but there is a, a flag, a, a U.S. flag. Is that what they see up there on the uh, top? Yeah, they can click on the, yeah. You have a British flag, so you can click on it and uh, play uh, in English. Oh, okay. So it's a Br- as, as British you can flag. Hear, I have a strong uh, accent, so you can hear <laughs> that uh, I'm from Paris. So. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. in French. Yeah. So you can uh, play it in English if you go up and click on the British flag. Now, yeah. now, also besides being educational, this is an entertaining game. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, you. Um, it's a it's a game to you you understand. It's a um, it's a really funny funny game because uh, you you're enjoying uh, while uh, making some uh, arithmetic calculations. So you you have good time because when you start uh, playing at mental clock, uh, you absolutely want to find the solution. So it makes you uh, having a good time. And where some may. Uh you know, be afraid that they wouldn't be able to play. Uh, I don't know if I can handle it, but <laughs> but you say it's easy to play. Yeah, it's true because uh, the, um, the the rules of the game is really simple. So uh, you you just have to 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 see some examples, and then you will be able to play right away. So uh, with the examples on the book, it's, e- it's easier to understand. And the game progresses, it can get harder and harder, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it's what it, uh, it, uh, inter- interesting. People starting with uh, easy level, so they can uh, find the solutions uh, pretty uh, quick, and then uh, they can uh, increase their, their level of, of difficulty and uh, see their uh, pro- progress. So they, they increase their uh, arithmetic uh, calculation, which is good at the end because you're using your real brain and not a calculator. So, obviously, you don't have to be great in math to play it, but you'll get better in math if you do play it. Yeah, it's true. I'm not good at math, so it's uh, it's for everyone, especially people who like playing a mental game, of course, like a crossword or a Sudoku, things like that, but uh, it's for everyone. You don't have to be good in uh, in math. For example, when I did a survey in France, uh, I was uh, astonished that uh, a lot of women who uh, who did who was not using to play um, uh, mathematic game or things like that uh, were really interested by this book. So, so it's really for everyone. Now you compare the game to uh, what's the uh, Sudoku? Sudoku, yeah. You compare it to that. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Maybe others are. That's what kind of a game is that? Yeah, it's another game, uh, another another uh, mental uh, game uh, from the um, Japan. Oh, so uh, okay. a lot of people playing this game because uh, you can play during your commute and uh, it's uh, making your brain t- tickled. So so it's a, a very famous game. But um, compared to Sudoku, I would say Sudoku is um, using uh, special logic, 
spatial logic, like crossword, for example, using verbal logic. Mental clock, instead, uses uh, mathematical logic because it's a real calculation compared to the other game. So if you can add, subtract, multiply, and divide, you can be a player. Yes, sure. So from 10 years old, I would say, you, you are able to play mental clock. So what is your, where do you go from here, Mark? What's your next challenge? So my next challenge, maybe, is to make uh, another uh, book for uh, children, like uh, not using division, U using, for example, only addition and subtraction. Like this, uh, it will be, uh, it, it will allow uh, children uh, below 10 years old to play as well uh, at this game because it's really interesting for, for children to, to, to make some uh, mental arithmetic uh, uh, while entertaining themselves. So I will do this, uh, this uh, it's my next challenge about this game. Well, Mental Clock, again, you can find more information at mentalclock.com and easy to play. It offers several levels of difficulties. That's great for children and adults alike. Mark, tell us how to get your book. How to get the book? Yes. So you can uh, you can find it on uh, iUniverse. Uh, you can find it also on uh, Amazon, uh, other uh, other uh, website uh, who's uh, selling uh, books. So and you can find it uh, on in in the website uh, Montaclock. Uh, you have the the possibility to to purchase the book also. It says on the front cover, 350 brain teasers plus solutions. Yes, if you don't find the solution, uh, you will find it at the end of the book. So ah, the, all you, the answers you, are at the end. But can't cheat you anybody. You won't be frustrated at the end. <laughs> don't look. Don't start at the end of the book, everyone. <laughs> no, start to try, and if, yeah. uh, you don't find... Uh, Maybe you, it, it, because it's a progressive book, so if it's too hard, uh, maybe you should try uh, the easiest uh, level. Well, Sometimes Mark, you can spend hours uh, just for one, uh, for one brand teaser. Well, Mark, uh, any other closing thoughts? Oh, I would say it, uh, it was a, a good challenge to, to, to make this, uh, this game, and uh, I'm sure that uh, when people will uh, use it, uh, they will... Uh, they will like it and start talking about Iran, and uh, I hope it will be a good success. And uh, I really want to, to make it known uh, to everyone because uh, it's really important to use a brain today. You know, with a computer, calculators, etc., uh, we are not using uh, our brain enough, so I think it's a good for people. The title of the book is Mental Clock, the new mental game. The creator, the author is Mark Riviere. And Mark, thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thanks, Steve. It was a pleasure. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website and thus Not-So-Soccer Mom.com was born. 
Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and insight, problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Spirit's Journey. And the author is David McKenzie, and David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Dave. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Appreciate your efforts to write your autobiography. It's inspirational, and we'll get into those details in a moment. But first, let me read some things you have written about your book, The Spirit's Journey. You say this, Dave McKenzie shares the inspiring story of how he overcame lifelong pressures, family opposition, and incredible personal hurdles in order to follow his dream of flying an airplane. Yet his adventuresome choices were not without challenges. After he becomes an aerobatic pilot, he chronicles the disastrous air show and subsequent injuries that nearly ended his life and his dreams. But, of course, the human spirit is a much stronger force than we ever imagined, even when faced with seemingly insurmountable obstacles. And this is your story, Dave McKenzie. So thank you. Thank you for sharing it with us. You're welcome. Why did you go to such lengths to write it? Uh, You know, that's another step. That's for sure. A big step. Most people wouldn't do that. I did not intend to write a book when I started the project. I was going through my memorabilia and thinking that I need to chronicle this stuff for my son, my daughter, and my grandchildren so to make some sense and perhaps have some value to them rather than going in a scrap heap after I depart this planet. And I got about 10,000 words into the project, was reviewing it, and thought, this might be suitable and kind of fun for anybody. So why don't I just relax and make a book out of it and let the storyline take it where it goes. So you decided to start with the two principal characters in your life, the ones that started it all, your mom and dad. That's right. I have to explain where I came from, you know. 
<laughs> exactly, exactly. And those were the people that motivated you. Definitely. And this book is dedicated to their memory. Well, yes. Um, I couldn't have done it without thinking of them. And, of course, as I wrote the book, my thoughts, my memories kept returning to those two people. And I didn't feel that um, they had been recognized after they left us. And I don't want them to be forgotten. Back in September of 1943, you were in first grade, and someone asked, David, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you answered? (laughs) A pilot. A pilot. (laughs) Just a little boy, but you knew what you wanted. Yeah, well, I had been around airplanes all of my life. I have no idea how old I was. I know I couldn't stand without holding on to something so what would that put me maybe nine months or so and uh dad took me for a ride in a little airplane that he owned with mom holding me in her lap and uh i just don't recall not being around airplanes and not flying it was a logical thing to do it was in your blood that could be true too (laughs) But you know, well, you knew at that young age you wanted to do that, and how did it come about? Well, I went through grade school, junior high, high school, three years of college. No, it was two years of college, and then I dropped out of college and went to work for a company designing truck bodies and buses. And uh, by that time, I was 21 years old. At that time, you were 21 before you were considered legally to become an adult, not 18. And I had to wait until I was 21 to start flying because the FAA, then it was the CAA, required that you be an adult or else you had to have parental permission to fly an airplane. Well, my mother was adamantly opposed to flying airplanes and people that uh, were involved in them and there are several anecdotes through the book that confirm that and uh, I had to wait until I was 21 and my mother couldn't do anything about it and then I started flying seriously. So during that time also somewhere you started working for the Ford Motor Company. Well actually I went to work for Ford Motor Company when I was 28 years old. When I was 26 years old, I had moved from Evergreen, Alabama to the Detroit area. Went to work in what we call an engineering job shop here. And that was with the agreement that they would send me to the advanced car chassis department at Ford Motor Company. I was using that as a backdoor entrance to Ford Motor Company. After I'd been there for six months, I put in an application for employment with Ford, which they ignored for the next year, and then they hired me direct. And I was in Ford Motor Company then. Little sideline here is, back when I was in the first grade, six years old, and they had asked, Dave, what do you want to do when you 
grow up, and I had said, pilot, and they had all said, no, 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 you can't. You wear glasses. Pilots can't fly air. I mean, pilots can't wear glasses. Uh, pick something else. Well, I finally said, well, all right, I'd like to work for Mr. Ford. <laughs> so that came to pass when I was 28 years old and remained true for the next 39 years and eight months. My goodness. What a career. Great career. I'm not ashamed of it. Not at all. And also very proud of Ford not taking any kind of government bailout. Absolutely. Um, I say things once in a while that are critical of um, my management's decisions and so forth. I think that comes with the territory. If you don't see things you don't agree with, you aren't looking very closely, but you don't have to be a constant complainer. That doesn't help at all. Don't do that. But definitely don't hesitate to state when you see something you don't like from an employer, in a diplomatic way, of course. Well, that's what I had done throughout that time. But Ford Motor Company stood nose to the wall for me when I flew the airplane into the ground in an air show. Ford Motor Company did absolutely everything ever mentioned in the employment agreement. Well, that's good and, to know. And I admire a company that will do that, that will stick with an employee over the rough spots. I admire the company as much as I am admire an employee who will stick with the same company when they're having difficulties. And then Ford Motor Company, as far as I'm concerned, showed, exhibited strongly the quality that they have when they said, U.S. Congress, thank you very much. We, don't, we won't take your money. We'll go back to Detroit and design and produce automobiles. You know, I, I salute like I salute Ford as well, and thank you for sharing that. Now, tell us about taking the airplane right into the ground. You were a flight instructor, an aerobatic pilot. Uh, tell us what happened. Um, I was performing an air show, and I had completed all of the show except the last three maneuvers. Nowadays, in the aerobatic circuit, they picked up the European definition of maneuvers. They call them figures, and I'm trying to get into the habit of doing that. I don't know why, but the one figure that I was going to do was called a tail slide. In an air show, you work back and forth in front of a crowd of spectators, and for the tail slide, I came from the spectator's right side, to the middle of the show area, pull the airplane to the vertical, that is going straight up, did a quarter of a slow roll going straight up, that put the top of the airplane towards the spectators. I reached the maximum altitude the airplane could reach, and it began to slide backwards. That's the intent of the figure. You're supposed to tail slide it. And I braced my feet on the rudder pedals, I braced my elbows against my ribs, gripped the stick with both hands, and pulled it slightly rearward so that the reverse airflow doesn't cause the doesn't cause me to lose my grip on the stick. It's pretty violent in that respect. 
and the airplane pitched nose down with the center of gravity of the airplane up near the front, and inertia acts about the center of gravity of the airplane. That took the airplane forward through the level flight attitude on over to the nose down attitude and carry the nose on through until the airplane is upside down. Nose is pointing towards the spectators, but the airplane's not going in that direction. The airplane is falling straight down. And all you have to do as a pilot is um, wait then until the nose starts to come back to the true vertical. The airplane will gain speed and be flying again. And then, of course, stick to the rear. That'll pull the nose up, and you recover going away from the spectators. Because in an air show performance, one of the primary considerations is don't ever be in a position where the airplane could get into the crowd of spectators if you lose it. So, of course, at this point, a super hot day, the airplane performance was not real good. Uh, we call it a high-density altitude in aviation circles. And with a high-density altitude, it took more altitude to recover than I was expecting it to. And as I was coming down, could see the ground coming at me, knew that I wasn't going to miss the ground. I went ahead and brought the stick the rest of the way back, pulled the airplane to a horizontal attitude, and now it's straight and level, right side up, but its path of flight is still straight down, and I pancaked into the ground. That rolled the airplane up in a ball, and of course by this time I was unconscious, and um, I lay there rolled up in the wreckage for about, oh, I have heard reports of uh, 15 minutes to a half hour before they got me out of the wreckage, and then it was about an hour after the impact with the ground, they had me in the ambulance and rolled me off to the hospital, where I stayed in a series of hospitals for the next six months. How did you get back to flying again, Dave? <laughs> That's incredible. Most people, you know, would probably say, you're crazy. I can remember girls that I was trying to date when I was a teenager said, no, 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 David McKenzie's crazy. He <laughs> likes fast cars and airplanes and things like that. Don't mess with him. <laughs> um, remind me of a story that occurred when I was in the hospital and they rolled all of it. We accident victims, stroke victims, heart attack patients, etc., into a area they called the day room. They introduced a psychologist. No. Yeah, he must have been a psychologist. I don't think he was a full psychiatrist yet. And he was going to tell us what we should do with our lives. He started off, he said, go around the room in a circle and answer three questions. One is, what's your name? Second one is, what happened to you? Number three is, what do you want to do? They got around to me, and I said, I'm Dave McKenzie. I flew an airplane into the ground, and I have three objectives. One is to get out of this hospital. Second one is to go back to work at Ford Motor Company. And the third one is to get back to flying. 
and they grabbed my wheelchair, wheeled me out of the room and out of the session, took me back to my room, threw me back in the bed. Later on, I was visited by the psychologist, and that was not a good visit. Neither he nor I enjoyed it. Because I was pretty adamant about telling him, oh, yes, I will fly again. And his approach was, you will not. And if you don't resign yourself to the fact that you will never fly an airplane again, you will be setting the stage for a really traumatic experience when you finally have to accept that fact. So I told him a story that emphasized my thoughts about his opinion, which were not good. <laughs> we can't broadcast them. No, we get, okay, well, but the point <laughs> is, you just made up your mind that you were going to do it, and, and that's your philosophy, and that's a philosophy you want others to understand. Exactly. My gosh, pick an objective that you like, that you enjoy that you want to do if you don't if your objective doesn't meet those three requirements the chances are better that you will never realize that objective okay if you've made those three choices then stick with them try to do it if you don't well i know if i don't do that i wouldn't be able to live with myself well, that pretty much uh, sums it up, doesn't it, Dave? That's your philosophy, and that's really the theme of your book. I think so. I think so. The title of his book is The Spirit's Journey. Dave, tell us how to get your book. It's uh, currently listed on Barnes Noble Books and on Amazon.com on the Internet. Um, just an order to them. If you open up the Internet and log into either of those two sites, or if you contact iUniverse Direct, and, of course, you can find their address on um, the Internet. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being with us. Well, it has been my pleasure, Steve. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. That's David McKenzie. He is the author of his book, The Spirit's Journey. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriend It is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. 
The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, I'm Nobody. My mother said it. I no longer believe it. And the author is Irma Stepp. And Irma joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Irma. Hello. Good to have you with us. Uh, This is your story, your memoirs. It's a very challenging story, a sobering story, a story about a little girl who didn't feel like her mother ever loved her, and now you're in your 60s, and you're trying to overcome that, aren't you? I am. This is uh, the last time she told me that was uh, about a year ago, and at that time... It seemed like it hurt as much as it did the first time. So someone said, write it down, write your feelings down, and I did. And the book is the result. You say this, when I was 16 years old, my mother said to me, you are nobody. You don't count. The only ones that count are me and this baby. And you also say, maybe this book will help me understand myself. Maybe I can learn to use my strengths accept my faults, and understand my feelings. Maybe there are other daughters and sons who will understand my story and know they are not alone. I wish for them to find peace in their heart. Well, Irma, have you found peace? I have found peace. I have. But it's taken many decades, hasn't it? Many decades, and most of the time it was probably from just not dealing with it and hiding it. Um, All those years, in raising my children and in my married life, I, they knew nothing about my, my past. I talked about I didn't talk about it, nothing. But I always felt it would make them feel less, not as good as other people. So I hid it. But it's fine. Now that it's all out, it seems like everyone is fine with it. And it gave me a freedom that I had lived my life without. And you found out that you aren't nobody, that you are somebody. Right. That's exactly right. And all of this, as you say, which is uh, very sad to have to go through all of that, beyond sad, traumatic, and and, uh, at times, I'm sure, feeling almost like it wasn't worth living. But you are, you say you're stronger today and a better person. I'm I'm very strong. My past has made me very strong, and I I think I've always been a strong person. Um, The kind of past I had made me feel that I could dig in and overcome anything. But I'm a better person because I'm not angry, and I understand where people like my mother 
and it comes from, and it's from a lack of knowledge and, I guess, just kind of ignorance. Your mother was an alcoholic. She absolutely was. She was an abusive alcoholic that loved men, and nothing mattered to her except having a good time, and it's my child. It's like I said, my childhood. I remember bruises, black eyes, and broken glass because they were constantly fighting. And from the age of about four, I was in and out of children's homes, and I ended up in the Meigs County Children's Home till I was sixteen. But my goal was to always get back to with my mother. In my mind, I could. Mom wouldn't have to have an old man. She, I would take care of her, get her a house, and she would love me. Well, and that's very and, typical that a child would always want the best for mother, even though mother is not treating the child well at all. In fact, treating the to- child terribly. Um, Mom lost custody of us when we when I was about ten years old, and there was five of us. Um, she had left with the man she was living with at the time and we lived in a chicken coop and um, the baby was only a couple months old the youngest and I I didn't know what to do with him he cried all the time and finally from Friday to Sunday I tried to and Sunday I went I got a neighbor and she came down and she called social service the police and an emergency squad and they took us away from mother completely at that time. And um, my youngest sister had rickets. And uh, my youngest brother had uh, pneumonia and a few other things. He was only two months old. And that I was. that's the time that the first time I really remember mom telling me I'm nobody. And she was so angry with me. We sat in the, on the bench of the courthouse when she went to court and they brought her through and she attacked me because I had called, went to a neighbor. And um, they, of course, we were taken away permanently at that time, but she, they had to restrain her to keep her from beating on me and they put her in handcuffs and took her into the courtroom. <clears throat> she was, like I said in my book, acting badly. So, um, and then... But still, until I was 16, <clears throat> excuse me, my goal was to get back with my mother. And my goal was always for my mother to love me. So I ran away when I was 16 to find her. And I found her. She was in a bar over in a one-room apartment over Main Street in Columbus, Ohio. And she had had another child. And how did she greet you when the first time you saw her? Um, it was, I was in pretty bad shape at that point because <clears throat> at the children's home they had made a road we lived the children's home in Pumroy is up on a high hill and they had made a road and I had ran away from the children's home before um, and in my book it has a picture of the cemetery I used to go to I used to sleep behind this big big stone that was like a it almost made a bed on one side of it and um they had done. They did road work and made the high, a highway at the bottom of the hill. So that night that I ran away, I had everything planned and I had my stack with the clothes and a few little things. And I started running. It was dark, and when I went over the hill, 
they had removed the hill, half the hill was gone, so I tumbled down to the sidewalk, down to the road, so I was in pretty bad shape. And when Mom saw me, she asked what happened to me. She didn't get up and hug me or anything. It was like, what are you doing here? What happened? And and uh, so she immediately, my social worker came. She knew where I would be, and she came out, and she said that she couldn't keep me anymore because I was a constant runaway and I was in danger. And she said, I'm going to release you from state custody. And at that time, Mom went to Columbus with me, and we were in Leetard at that time. And um, and we, I had another little brother that was about 18 months, two years old. And that's the child that she, and this was the time that she told me that, again, when she got drunk, that I was nobody and to get out of the apartment or the room. So that was the second time that I had heard it, that I remember. Of course, you say you were raised by strangers and... You felt helpless in controlling your environment, but you learned how to survive as a child, you say, through imagination and fantasy. What do you mean by that? When I went to the... um, My Aunt Mary raised me when Mom didn't have me. The first memories I have was with Aunt Mary. And I remember being on the floor, and I talk about that in my book. And... um, all of a sudden, there was another me, and she had a baby, but she had a chair across the door, and she kept me in the kitchen, and she kept Billy in the other part of the house, which I, what well, I'd never been in the other part of the house that I remember. And when I saw him, that was my first real happiness. It was like there was another little person, and I remember that so clearly. And I went to the the door, and I touched him, and he felt like me you know he felt like my arm his arm felt like and we were the same age in fact um he was mom's sister's child uh aunt mary was mom's sister but billy and i had the same father so um that's i and that i think that's why aunt mary hated me so badly so did you ever uh, find peace with her no no Aunt Mary was later um, um, diagnosed as schizophrenic, and uh, she died that way. And I was uh, um, all her life. I was one of her main, one of the main people she hated. And I think that was because of the affair her sister had with her husband. Well, this life of yours, uh, you have tried to forget. You spent a lifetime to try to forget, and here you are opening all these doors to your past. Uh, Why do this? I did it because Mom came back in my life after I was married and had children, and she called me and she said, I I really need help, and I... I, um, I started talking to her again, and I went down, and she she had not drank in a long time, but she was living in a very poor condition, uh, um, beyond poverty. And I got back with that goal in my head to get her a house and to give her a chance in life, of which I did. I found a little house in Farmers, Kentucky, not too far from me, and um, I bought it for her, and she... Um, she was fine with it. I bought her furniture and everything. It was a darling little two-bedroom house. And uh, she just 
was fine until she told me she needed to go back to her hometown uh, to do some things, and I took her back, and I left her with Aunt Mary. Aunt Mary was alive at the time, and uh, when and I was going to, I told her I'd come back and get her in a couple of days. Well, she never called me, so she called me, and I said, "Are you ready to come home?" She said, "I am home," and I said, "How did you get home?" And she said, "I have gotten married." So, which was strange for mom because she never did get married. She only lived with men. And I went down, and she was with this 80-some-year-old man that she had that had brought her back there. And so it was, again, she told me to get on with my life. She didn't want anything to do with me, and that was the last time I heard I'm nobody, that I had didn't count. She wanted me out of her life, and she didn't want me around this man because I would, might tell him things that, that he would not love her. And I remember standing there, and I thought, I've went through this so many times before, I'm never going through this again. And then at some point, but it still bothered me, I still wanted, well, she called me again, and he had moved back and took all the furniture, and she had sold everything I'd gotten her, and it was just, just a, so at that point, someone said, just write your feelings down, I I thought. And I, I didn't remember a lot until I started writing, and then it just, the the events in my life just kind of took shape from one event to another. And that's how the book came about. Well, you say that I'm Nobody offers a brutally honest glimpse into what it is like to grow up without a mother's love and how one woman reached from within and found the courage to survive despite facing insurmountable odds. Well, we salute you, Irma. We salute you for your courage and your determination. Thank you very much. And I, once I got it on paper and I remembered it all and I talked to my children, I feel, I feel free. I feel so much better about myself. And the see all the dark secrets that was hid inside me is, is okay. Right. And that's what I guess the main purpose of my book is to for others is you don't have to hide those everyone's got <clears throat> secrets I guess and you don't have to hide them. People will accept you for what you are. And I feel so much better and I'm very happy and content. Well, congratulations Irma. It's uh, Thank I just you. can't even imagine. It's been a a lifetime journey for you, and it's great to hear you say you have peace. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. The title of the book, I'm Nobody. My mother said it. I no longer believe it. And the author is Irma Stepp. Irma, tell us how to get your book. Uh, iUniverse sells it. You can get it online through iUniverse, Barnes & Noble. Uh, it's in bookstores. Um order it. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for interviewing me. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.